They say one of the keys to intelligence is the ability to make connections between disparate pieces of information and to see patterns and links before everyone else sees them. If that's so, then today's guest might be the most intelligent person I know. I'm joined by Ben Gamble, and he's just exceptional at seeing the connections between different technologies and different technical ideas. And he has such a varied background as a programmer that he's got like a wealth of different experiences to draw on. So who better to gaze at the programming landscape with us and ask, with all these pieces, how are we supposed to fit things together to a coherent system? Which bits of technology belong in a modern architecture? Do we really want half a dozen different databases with an event bus between them? Or would we be happier with just a general purpose relational database ruling the world? Because you can build a thriving business with just MySQL and Python. You really can. But by the time you're a thriving business, are you going to start to wish you had a dedicated analytics database like Apache Pinot for your queries? Are you going to wish you had Redis as a high-performance caching layer? Which bits should you use, and when do you make the trade-off to switch? And when the landscape's this vast, why isn't there a map? That's the topic up for discussion today, and it's a huge one, so we best get started. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Ben Gamble. I'm joined today by the inimitable Ben Gamble. Ben, how's things? Things are great, if slightly warm today, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's cooking up in England. It really is. We had a wet and remarkably cold summer until literally this last week or two, it seems. <laughs> yeah. That's the joy of England. I used to know this Italian person who said she couldn't understand why the English talk about the weather so much until she came to England. And then the weather's so interesting because you never know what you're going to get. You really don't. Like, what's funny is one person in my team who literally lives, it turns out, within walking distance to my parents, and we've been going to the same library for the last 30 years without knowing mm. this. Um, he's So he's 10 miles away from me, and we normally have different weather, even though really? we're in an entirely flat part of Cambridge. <laughs> I kid you not. It's quite funny. Okay, well, that, we'll save that for the meteorology podcast, <laughs> yes. trying to explain why that would be. Uh, I've got you in, because you, you just, you've got one of those... Um, avalanche minds. Whenever I poke at it, I get just an avalanche of information coming out. That's why you're here. I want to get into that. But before we do, one of the reasons you have so many perspectives and angles on programming is because you've got such a varied um, backstory. You've worked in so many angles of the industry. So I'm going to start there. Give us your biography. Sure thing. So I got into the industry the usual way, a lot of well, programming, at least the usual way most people do, which is you want you see video games, you think, I want to make those. And you then you go to the local library at the time and then find a book that says learn C. That faithful <laughs> book has a lot to answer for. Why do we do that to children? <laughs> I know, I know. And then my mother, being wonderfully and supportive, said, went and said, well, there's a course down at the local college you can go to for that. So me, age 11, was surrounded by postdocs growing up because I was growing up in Cambridge, yeah. right? <laughs> Learning C++ to some some like NBQ level of stuff way back when, oh, back wow. in 1999. 
And so that's where it all started. And then at school, I was lucky enough to be able to play with everything from microchips coding uh, in both basic, yes, actual basic on microchips. Oh, wow. To some assembly. Uh, yeah. And had a fun maths teacher who used to run C-sharp courses uh, during lunchtimes every now and again. And so I kind of got into it through all this. And then the fateful thing happened of I found modding tools for video games. And kind right. of proceeded to build and an attempt to break every single video game ever, from hacking data files in things like GTA 3 to using the Unreal Engine editing kit to basically build my own levels and then occasionally mod games. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's and a then, cracking way to grab a teenager's imagination. It really is, because you just give them a bunch of tools and say, are you smart enough? And then <laughs> yeah. your first instinct is, yes, yes, I am. Let me go prove it. And then the yeah. answer is, no, no, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, all, all I did was learn a lot about loops and what doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and how to crash a game. Oh, very easily. If you do some fun things, like how many, like what scale actually costs and things like Actually, there are limits to what your machine can do, and there's a real reason games designers make certain levels, certain shapes, so you can't see things around corners, so they can lazy load them in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that was a serious thing back in Doom. Oh, it's still a serious thing today. All right. Yeah, so like portal rendering kind of, like, so Doom did this a bit, but it kind of really became big in the build engine, and mm. Thief the Dark Project was really famously a portal renderer, whereas this is the idea of you render things through little portal doors to the next zone and never beyond that. And turn it back to the story was I went to university originally to do uh, some some sort of avionics engineering, which I hated, and then transferred to astrophysics. <laughs> right. uh, so I have a degree in astrophysics, which I basically spent 90% of my time trying to avoid physics. Like at all costs. <laughs> basically, every computing module you can imagine, every stats module you can imagine, um, electronic engineering model modules, and then enough physics to get by and still get the qualification. <laughs> I spent, I got, I, I basically then was kind of hooked into various little bits and pieces, which was the first version of Unity came out on PC uh, right. after it was a Mac product originally, and me and a friend tried to build games on it. Still a good friend. We were building, we were chatting about building games in San Francisco last week because we didn't know we were both flying out. <laughs> <laughs> World being a small place. And then yeah. after uni, I got my first job at a consultancy doing technical consulting and management consultancy. I got that by talking about Minecraft mods I built. Uh, really? I know, yeah. So I used to build world generators to kind of plug on top of Minecraft. And right. I was trying to build things, worlds worlds based on the kind of the equations I've been learning in planetary science. Things like, how do you make a Mercury-looking world in Minecraft? Oh, cool. Yeah. So this is what I was doing at university rather than actually my degree, which I really struggled <laughs> to through the end of. But also on top of that, uh, trying to prove that a 3DS didn't need two cameras, so I tried to build an augmented reality system on my own. From scratch, I don't recommend. <laughs> I got halfway there, and that actually got me hired um, at the time yeah. as an image processing engineer uh, for this consultancy. I can see that. And there I kind of joined in on a bunch of very large system developments, everything from kind of inspection machines for, for uh, drugs. So the drug capsules you buy have all gone through a variety of inspection machines. I helped design bits of the insides of one. It was amazing. I got to basically play with high-speed cameras, gigabit Ethernet, back when it was still a rarity, <laughs> and then like custom GPU imaging techniques to basically say, how do we look for the defects and such in, in true real time? These are uh, you know a million items per day one-to-one -one rejection, 
Uh, as it's sliding along the conveyor belt. As it, goes by, as it gets printed and then goes over the edge of the conveyor belt, you have to do air ejection blowing off the capsules. Oh, cool. It looks very <laughs> cool to watch. But then it gets faster and faster and faster, and you realize what speed really can, can go wrong. I kid you not, the first bit of debugging I did after we couldn't work out what was going wrong was an oscilloscope on trigger wires of the camera. Awesome. <laughs> and I found something. <laughs> I found an unbalanced lack of a common earth between various UPSs in the system. Oh my god, that's, that's like, serious. Oh yes, but also very annoying. I lucked out by finding it. My colleagues at the time said, no one would have done that. That was a kind of a weird move, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> So like there's, so there's literal debugging where you pull the moth off the circuit board. Pretty close. And then there's one level above that, which is an oscilloscope. There's oscilloscope between two yeah. things, watching pulses go by to see if the camera's trigger is actually a, a proper rising edge in the right place. Oh, God. Yeah. And from there, built embedded circuits, programmed tiny 8-bit micros and some other bits along. And I ended up doing mobile dev because... I kind of point, talked about the augmented reality thing, and then, mm. uh, then one of the partners overheard that I could write code for devices and asked, how long do you think it would take to write an iPad app to do a questionnaire? And I said, a few weeks. Shouldn't really be that much more complicated. Vague understanding of how I like, didn't know it was Objective-C, thought it was still C++. Right. I <laughs> and then a Mac turned up on my desk the next day with an iPad on top. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to get the gear. Three weeks later... I chipped the app to this internal thing, and it did a lot of it. did very well, except I had to speed learn Objective-C, and I do not <laughs> recommend. And from there, it kind of became things like how I increasingly kind of ended up in these bigger and bigger systems, like like things like, like camera systems, inventory management systems, and then a lot of apps, which had to communicate either as IoT devices or otherwise. And then what happened next was like, over time, kind of like specialized deeper and deeper into trying to make things a bit more interactive. So I did a lot of augmented reality uh, and then a lot of just high-speed data, things like how do we deal with like low, um, low transmission rate UHF signal lines? Mm. Like how do you deal with that? The answer is it's fine as long as you're accepting a baud rate of nothing almost. <laughs> and I mean like think, no, no, think low end of null modem. Level bad. Right. <laughs> and the thing is, right, two Ethernet ports went in either end. So you didn't, you, it, was in, it was transparent, if slow. <laughs> so that's where I started out. And there are a lot of things I can't talk about due to all things official secrets, but. Oh. Yes. <laughs> fun, but weird. But generally, the, weird, the more secret, the more boring. Right. Yeah. I can believe Always that, actually. Um, and then I left and founded an augmented reality company on Google Glass. Um, so Google Bus. Google Glass. Oh, Google Glass. You were actually yes. one of those companies. Yes. So it's a little YouTube video of Race Yourself you can look up for augmented reality exercise games. Yeah. So it was a whole idea of running the park with someone chasing you or a, or a personal trainer telling you to slow down or speed up. Oh, yeah, yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Those kind of things were just like what we did lots of. And then like because I'd been involved in the launch of WebRTC when I was at the consultancy, so Google launched WebRTC, hmm. um, uh, I built an air drum kit for it with a Connect. So you could oh, do this nice. jam, jam with Chrome game, if you remember that, with an yeah, Android. Yeah. That, was, that was at I.O. It was good fun. And what happened was I realized that, hey, why don't I just take this tech and reuse it myself? So I used like WebRTC to do multiplayer games over Google Glass. So you would run around playing Pac-Man with other people in the park. And I think like I saw that. that. That's... Very, I'll have to share the video with you. It's, it's good fun. It was, it was over 10 years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm always sad that Google Glass didn't evolve into something. Yeah, it felt like it should have. But then, like, there was always that weird moment when we were telling people about turning on the GPS chip, and they said it didn't have one. And I showed them the bill of materials, and I showed them the GPS strings coming out the device, and they were like, how did you do that? I said, did you not try? <laughs> <laughs> so after that petered out, um, and a bit of pivoting happened, I stepped away and was working at a hiking app company for a while called V-Ranger. I was their R&D lead doing more augmented reality, on iOS and Android, so cross-platform building of basically AR apps to label mountains. Oh, nice. And then like GPS app, um, load GPS code to start like, safety correct positioning in sharp valleys and things like this. So how do you de-amplify error? How do you make it safe so that, that all the mountain rescue teams who use this app could actually do it safely? Right. And actually navigate safely around the mountain where it told you where you really were rather than amplifying error, which you can do quite easily. Have you pitched any of this to Apple now that they're doing their Apple Vision thing? They must be clamoring. Tim Cook has. I have a picture of Tim Cook using the Vision thing with the uh, with the with the um, labeling mountains. So the that app company we had a on the Series Two watch launch. There is a literal uh, WWDC thing with one of my old colleagues. She's on stage talking about the watch app. Oh, cool! Yes, <laughs> I know for a fact they've seen some of this stuff already. Right, that's that's quite a cool thing, Feather, to have in your cap. Oh, it is. There are loads of these little bits and pieces. I just wish I was physically there, which I wasn't. I was back at the head office going, please don't explode the server. Please don't explode the server. Please don't explode the server. <laughs> the, the firestorm of clicks only eventually explode the server. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they were pre-cloud and in a physical machine somewhere in a data center. Because originally they were a company that launched on Symbian. Symbian? Yeah, it- the Nokia OS. There's a name I haven't heard for some time. Oh. So that was originally where the app had started, and they'd ported it over to Android and iOS, but now they're part of Actor, Outdoor Active. So it's kind of still a big app. It was mm. its height. It had you know, 5 million actives. So it was a pretty cool time. Mm. And from there, kind of stepped away uh, due to a logistics company I'd been building in the background for a while for my old investors, Followed and then did a ton of contracting along the way for bootstrap startup reasons, where I worked at Rare, Microsoft, on things like Sea of Thieves and Everwild. Oh, cool. Which was good fun. Uh, worked on AI development there for their kind of games. Originally, it was brought in to uh, bring kind of like literal generative, generative AI thinking into the game was the original remit of why I was there. Never quite happened due to remits shifting around. Uh, but that was what I was hired for at the time. What year was that that you were trying to do generative AI in games? So 2016. 2016, okay. Um, and we actually had, so the... And what's funny is we actually built something very similar to an LLM for addresses at the logistics company. So it was not a lot of NLP processing behind the scenes, where we were basically taking in addresses, pulling them apart by parts of speech, by additional steps, and doing that kind of functional correction across the stuff. And then from there, I kind of went through a bunch of like, things where I consulted at places doing building literal operating systems from the kernel up, which was fun and silly. Uh, to do crazy scale stuff helps. There was a great, cool demo with CCP games where we got 15,000 players into an actual real time game. Uh, so I helped do all the architecture for the game itself. Then, kind of like after the logistics company was going on to its high, but a failed acquisition kind of burned me out a bit. I went as exec producer at a small studio for a while and then at Improbable for a bit as well after kind of mergery weird stuff happened mm. uh, doing big scale things again, built some of their built kind of a big initial part of the renderer that became their metaverse renderer. And then I ended up, then kind of the pandemic hit. Just before that, I had left. Uh, my daughter was born, so I took a bit of time out, and then joined Ably Real Time, where I think we met when I was still there. Yes. Real-time data. 
real time data. Yeah. So I was the one banging the Kafka drum there. Um, <laughs> and so that was big scale web sockets with hardcore reliability and also MQTT. And I was head of DevRel and then kind of a position analogous to a field CTO called the Deployment Champion. And right. then after about two and a half years of absolute hilarious, really good fun there, because uh, of getting things like the Kafka story sorted out, getting us to market into these bigger and bigger areas, showing what you really do with high-speed data. I joined Ivan, and now I lead developer education here, though I tend to go by the open-source code sommelier these days. Open-source code sommelier. <laughs> Pretty much. There is one thing I'm jealous of you, Ivan, is you have, like, so they're a kind of stuff-as-a-service platform, yes. right? So you've got all the databases and all all the infrastructure playground stuff that you can go and build crazy demos with for, and call it work. That is, that is, let's we say, a conservative 90% of why I joined. Um, <laughs> it's also kind of the bigger story, which is that open source is eating the world. And uh, one of my colleagues had this great description of open source, which is you're basically leveraging the free cycles of every single one of the world's developers out there. Yeah. Because that's what they're doing. They're just putting things into open source, arguing beautifully productively to some to make something really good because they care. And yeah. then at someone like Ivan, where we are still a big contributor to open source, we're almost like twenty percent of like of our dev team, twenty five percent of our dev team is literally upstream only committers. Oh, like right. seriously, we have that we have a lot of committers in staff. Right? That is a decent percentage, yeah. It is, because all four founders are Postgres committers. Oh, cool. Like people don't realize, like everyone thinks, oh, we just releases from the no, founded by people who contribute, run by people who contribute. Still, <laughs> That's cool. I know it's really cool. So the DNA of the company is about this idea of saying, find the best of open source, deliver it in this awesome piece of infrastructure, and I do mean like so much infrastructure work behind the scenes. So abstract away all those cloud platform layers and just say, here's the database, get going. Which leads us on to the main topic I've brought you in for, right? Because you've got access to all these different data platforms, yes. and a lot of experiences in different ways of building software and languages, yes. right? And not everyone can see this, but you're wearing a T-shirt that says, have a nice data. So this is from the Kafka Summit this year, and possibly one of my actual favorite T-shirts. Have I've had nice so many requests for more people. People say, where did you get that T-shirt? It seems awesome. <laughs> Cool. Living so, the, street, the other good one from last year. <laughs> <laughs> Putting all that together, mm -hmm. right? Let me put it this way. I, I would think a lot of companies, a lot of projects say to themselves, they have two arguments for generic project X. They say, okay, let's argue about whether we're going to use MySQL or Postgres. And once you've settled that argument, we'll argue over whether we should be processing data using Python or SQL. And oh, once you've answered those two questions, <laughs> you're away. Yes. This is uh, the, the classic dichotomy of there are, only, there, there, are, there are some answers in the world, but most of them are Postgres. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yes, it go, this, is, this is the thing. Like Everyone starts out with thinking, let's reach for the tools. And we all remember the LAMP stack of old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was beautiful because it answered every question you had. You needed something to. You need somewhere. To, you need a machine to run on, running Linux. You needed something to handle the, the actual requests themselves and reverse proxy them. So you had Apache. You needed a database. MySQL was everywhere at the time. Postgres wasn't really an option. Yeah, it was just a little early in the Postgres story. And then, of course, you needed something to actually write your code in. And PHP, 
it got stuff done and they will always give it credit for it got stuff done. it got stuff done and it opened the door for a lot of programmers and oh, let's stop that absolutely <laughs> it's you know it, it had productivity on its side and eventually getting stuff done soonest will win whether yep. it's right or not it's if you're familiar with the simpsons there's the right way the wrong way and the max power way I've not heard that quote. So Homer changes his name to Max Power, and the, and 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 the answer and the the, the question response to it was, isn't that just the wrong way? And Homer says, yes, but faster. <laughs> <laughs> and that, in some respects, sums up PHP. But it's not actually always the wrong way. It's just, it, but it is faster to get there. You'll get an answer faster. Yeah, that, that's another great dichotomy in programming. Do you want your problems today or tomorrow? Much. And there are a lot of solutions which are just storing up problems for tomorrow. Absolutely. And as much as I'm often the one saying technical debt is a coin you spend like any other, you do end up at the point where sometimes you do have to pay it back. Yep. And this kind of comes back to this idea of saying, like, what it, like, what tools do you use along the way? So how do you navigate that decision space? Generally, When would you come off that, that path of Postgres with Python? Ah, so um, if you're actually at, at Ivan yourself, the answer is never. Ivan is built mostly is built by Postgres committers in Python. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that is that is that is the, that is the religion in this building. <laughs> right. However, that, that that aside, it comes down to two or three major kind of questions. The first is always going to be access patterns. What are you trying to? How are you trying to access this data? What like is it? I'm change. Am I changing? You know, the location of a single person a thousand times, and then being able to query it quickly. Mm-hmm. Am I reading the stock market in as a massive stream of data and then acting on the events of change? Am I looking at flight data for the last 100 years to try and, well, not, well maybe 100 years, yes, but let's say last 10 years of flight data to work out where I can optimize my flight routes? All these data kind of questions are really come down to have a different access pattern to the data itself. And you can always say Postgres dot, 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 and it will give you an answer. And, it, and until you get some specifically very far outliers, you will just get a worse answer depending on what happens next. Yeah, yeah, you'll be stretching it further and further Absolutely. out from its comfort zone. And yeah. as soon as you go beyond a certain point, what really gets you more than anything else is the cost. Fundamentally, you only really have a defined budget for an answer, right? And you have to then look at the cost. That's both a financial cost and a cost of failure, right? So you're considering time as a cost in there too. Yes, and this is the kind of like you have a time window bound of success, and then a failure window on top of that. So if you imagine, mm-hmm. let's say, an example I keep giving these days is you are trying to recommend a movie when you leave the Netflix, leave that seat on Netflix or Amazon Prime or a service yet to be determined. Yeah. You leave that when you leave that video, and they need to recommend to you a video. They have about twenty seconds total to recommend something right or they're going to recommend something wrong. And a good recommendation keeps you in the platform or lets you lock in your next thing. Your actual churn percentage will go through the roof if they don't give you the next thing, because you'll just not see what you need to do next. And exploration takes time. Yeah, Your engagement is massively determined by how fast that answer is. So your cost of failure is actually quite large by not having the data fast enough. Yeah, And if the cost of data being fast enough is, I now need 100,000 cores to run my Postgres, that's not a good answer anymore. Yeah. And this is where we come back to like costs. So I'm kind of abstracting costs as a time versus machines cost here. As you could, if you have enough machines, the time will go low. But number of machines to cost going low is another cost all of itself. Yeah. 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 And then yeah. the flip side is trading. Let's say you're trying to make, a, you've got a fill or kill order for 100 shares of Tesla. 
if you don't get that right, you have potentially unlimited liability for that. <laughs> right? Failing yeah. that you might buy Tesla stock, <laughs> which could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> Not touching any Elon Musk. No, 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 uh, no, no. We're no, 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 leaving that. It's just it's just weirdly volatile at the minute. Mm. It's a reference. Okay, <laughs> but this is where it kind of comes down to: it is the cost of failure can be very high. Therefore, having a correct answer in the time allowed is actually something you can spend money on. But then it's like come back to why we don't use Postgres for everything. Like these days, a lot of the time, I'm saying use an analytics specialist database like ClickHouse, like Snowflake, like Redshift. Because to be honest, you just can't put a few. You can't put more than a few terabytes in Postgres before it gets very upset with you, and it, and then it just starts consuming calls, and then you watch it slow down, and you can't do the fast transactions you want to do on it. And some of this is just because of what Postgres is with this kind of acid transaction model. Some of it's because of SQL, but a lot of it's simply because of the way it's engineered is not for saying, I can scrub through a very large quantity of data very quickly, but I can find one answer inside a very you know, defined six jumps, I think it is. Mm. The kind of B plus tree under the hood. Yeah, yeah. But that kind of implies that this is just a question that affects people with more than a few terabytes. So the the fact is that we ha we have this one the one that the one of the most kind of ubiquitously freeing things, particularly of the last thirty years of software development, has been Moore's law, right? Mm. Fundamentally, the machines we run on are supercomputers, right? Like I was at the San Francisco Computer Museum recently, and though the Cray one was in front of me and I wanted to sit on it like it was a piece of lounge furniture, I didn't because I said no. That's what Moore's watching. But fundamentally, that is probably less powerful than the server this this podcast is being recorded to yeah, by a yeah, probably probably decent is. margin. And you I, mean, think, I think my laptop's got a dozen graphics cores. And like, when did that happen? I know, I know. And these are, you know, scalable vector units. And you think those used to only be in supercomputers. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that is a serious, that is a serious business when you think about it. So if you think that Moore's law is basically holding up whatever we use, we get away with a lot of solutions which are not optimal, but so far in the noise. So this is where we come back to the kind of some of those ideas of where speed comes from. If I'm going to call a database and it's on the other end of a network wire, I'm not going to get faster than maybe 50 micros in the same data center, 50 microseconds. Yeah. Or if it's you know, a cloud one, if I get better than 10 milliseconds to get there and back, I'm already doing pretty well. So I don't really need my database to be any faster than about half that network velocity. Yeah. You could find that the bottleneck is actually serialization and deserialization, right? Often Easily. it is. It really yeah. often is. It's like we have these novel formats specifically for this. And like a lot of things like message pack and protobufs, or hopefully not protobufs. I have a bone to pick there. I ranted on stage at QCon about them. Um, it's good fun. <laughs> okay. um, it's, it's now public. <laughs> but the key thing always comes back to this idea of like everything costs something. Therefore, where do we need to optimize the bit over here? And particularly with Postgres, Postgres is pretty quick, and most data is pretty small. And most queries are not very complicated. If you're not doing a very complicated query, you can get away with almost anything. Um, I know people who have Redis as their primary database because they're not doing anything clever. Oh. It works. I know someone who had Redis as their primary database, and they, the company imploded one day. So we, so I once lucked out because of the, by that for a little while. We had it as our primary database for about eight months on on what startup for a while because we were in a hurry and it worked and we never right. got caught out. 
until we found, we found out how bad it really was later down the line. And we realized we were never actually, we had a very aggressive caching policy, never actually ended up doing this clever write module we put in to write it to disk properly. Oh, right. Yeah. And it yeah. worked. <laughs> for for disclaimer purposes, I'm not sure Redis are advising that it be your primary database of record. Their website would say otherwise. Oh, really? Oh, they okay. A very multimodal story. And if you work for Redis, you're invited on the podcast to argue your side. Like genuinely, but genuinely, they've done some magic. I'm not. I'm not gonna, I will say that they have write-ahead logs going to disk these days. You know, they've done some. They've taken a fun idea, stretched it so far that it's no, that it's that it's weirdly awesome now. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, like, I, I have nothing but fun things to say about what Redis can do. The general answer is, should it? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. So, push yeah. The, push this more into the language space for me, though, because we talked a lot about databases on the podcast, but where yeah. does this affect language choice? So, what really comes down to it is if you think about it, like how, like most of what we do in programming is try to express a series of concepts as in a, in a code, which a machine can then understand. The big, by the way, this is my general statement about LLMs, is LLMs do two things very well. They make us sound like computers, and computers sound like us. <laughs> okay, yeah, I like that. That's all they do. They're really good at translating between the other. They're basically just a way to do, basically, a very weird programming language, for want of a better word. Okay. Or a very bad interpreter for a programming language. That which makes is, me think of something someone else said about LLMs, which is they don't give you an answer, they give you something that looks the shape of an answer. Exactly. And we're missing the compiler at the other end, basically, yeah. right now. Yeah, the thing that checks that actually you said yes. what you think you said. Yes, I can imagine a borrow checker looking at someone's grammar and going, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's like incomplete clause stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but can I get back to this idea of manipulating data at, at any kind of scale, whether it's the one or the many? Currently, mm -hmm. like the de facto is SQL, about 49 years of, from 49 years of development and an ISO standard behind it. Yeah. And it's you know, it's designed to be a, a declarative language to basically state what you want to happen, and then it happens. However, over time, that sort of munge is you can do all things in SQL. Uh, I think I may have shared the schemaverse with you at one point. The which, schemaverse? Uh, if I haven't, I need to. Which I don't is, think you have. So someone built a multiplayer space trading game in Postgres SQL, um, <laughs> and the whole game runs inside Postgres stored procedures. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You can find it. It is open source. Um, okay, we're going to link to that in the I show notes. It's how I got into Postgress. <laughs> I was searching multiplayer space games and found that and was like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> if it's powerful enough to do that, you're, you're in I, I Nerd sniping me is not really a challenge. So no, I get that sense. I really do. <laughs> and kind of back to this kind of thing. is like, so SQL can do most things, but should it? And is it very optimal for these things? And in general, it was designed against this relational model, which has a lot of kind of thoughts and patterns from when it originally came about, which is the idea of relations are important in data. We should normalize our data to reduce its storage footprint. Because if you remember, storage was almost an order of magnitude more expensive than compute for a while. Yeah, yeah. It really was. So normalizing your data mattered. And then we kind of had the big shift probably about 10 years ago, maybe a bit more now, maybe 15 years ago, where compute collapsed in price. Compute didn't compute collapsed in price a bit. But here's what really happened. Storage went to near zero, right? Commodity yeah. storage became a thing. So suddenly it's like, why are we paying costs to normalize when we don't need to? Why don't we just make access faster? So then we normalized out our data and suddenly the relational model didn't hold up. So SQL didn't hold up. So we went no SQL or not just SQL or not only SQL 
or an acronym of your choice, basically. <laughs> and you kind of come around again and think, wait, what? We now have a different access pattern? Like Cassandra's first query language was Thrift. <laughs> so was you it really? Yes, it had a Thrift, Thrift API to begin with. Um, a while ago, I was just came back about that, and he says, it was good at the time. I regret many things about it. <laughs> um, but this is the kind of thing. It's like RPCs are just a language kind of model of choice, and that's all SQL is. It's an RPC language that changes something, whether it's data description, whether it's data modeling, whether it's a query. And then you think, but why aren't we using something more general purpose? Because I can transform data with SQL if the data thinks it's SQL-shaped. But what happens if I actually want to you know, run something a bit more clever? Like I want to do... I don't know, a Fourier transform, right? Like find yeah. the frequency domain of things. So this is very common in images. So if you take a, so a JPEG is a Fourier domain compression. So you take an image, you split it to the Fourier domain, and you basically do some normalizations there and flip it back. And this means, that's why JPEGs are actually very good at looking good, even though highly compressed. Yeah. They're smarter things, but they all work on similar principles. So if you think about it, you can't really express a Fourier transform in SQL unless it's a competition, at which point, you know, competitive codes, like one of your previous guests talked about, that's yeah. a, that, that is the realm of, 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 of wonderfully crazy, <clears throat> I don't approach. Yeah. <laughs> and instead, you'd want to throw it into a more complete language. But the problem is now is, imagine you've now, now you've given people with Python and access to your actual database, and they're running Python in your database. Are you actively worried about that? I generally, so, it, it, so personally, I like the idea of it until everyone says, but when what happens if someone puts something, a bit of malicious query in and it starts doing random things across your network? Yeah. So how do yep. you sandbox it? So I've seen you, in the wild uh, Java store procedure that decided it'd be a good idea to start a web server. Yes. Yeah. And that I wasn't malicious. That. that was just a really bad idea. I, I, I've had that bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Literally had that bad idea myself. So that kind of stuff is why, on average, you don't let people run code directly in the database, uh, mm. other than Lua inside many things, it seems. But it's really powerful because suddenly you have arbitrary compute. And we like arbitrary compute because if I can manipulate the data where it is, I'm not paying a network cost. Yeah. Right? I can use the fact that I have a, a you know a big CPU there doing my heavy lifting and my web server can be nice and state, stateless. Um, it's like one of those benedictions, may your services be stateless. <laughs> they never are, but we'd like to think they are. Yeah, and the yeah. more you can push into the database, the better. Does that? I mean, some people would argue that that that's a mistake of how you're looking at the database, and that you should actually split it out into the storage layer and the computing layer. Ah, yes, the share everything bizarrely model, which has two separate parts. <laughs> it's one of those naming dichotomies. Share nothing has. Uh, has every has the computer storage shared yet share everything doesn't which is kind of like <clears throat> one of those interesting kind of moments of i see where you're going but the naming came out funny yeah um, <laughs> so i can understand where these things go loads of services now do this um like famously snowflake just dumps everything in s3 um loads of databases street secretly dump everything in s3 these days hell warpstream have rebuilt kafka with only s3 below it yeah <laughs> they have very interesting looking thing, and it's modeled now like a lot of like a lot of these um kind of uh, uh, Prometheus backends, like Thanos, where you just have agents writing directly into S three, are kind of like the almost the data lake model, like uh, the kind of um, iceberg or hoodie tables. Mm. The problem ends up being that once you're in S three, you're at the whim of S three. S three is way faster than it should be for what it is. 
way faster. It's also way more reliable and scalable than it should be. It's actually almost black magic under there. <laughs> but fundamentally, it's still 100 mils to do a change or a read. Yeah. And that's, that's partially network hot, partially you know, the actual S3 itself. But also the actual API itself is not that fast, fundamentally. It's okay once you start streaming, but you've got to establish and reestablish connection, and you're starting having a problem. So when, but when you're on a local disk, you actually end up this thing where it's like literally two orders of magnitude faster. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And the question is, where can you afford to pay it? So if you can afford to have it in S3, it's probably a good idea. But if you can't afford to have an S3, it's, you, you don't realize it until you've already paid the cost and you don't know you're paying it. And that's where you kind of end up with these hybrids. And a lot of why I'm working right now is around this idea of like, how do I do hot and cold storage at the same time? So Treating got, local disk as just another layer of cache. Fundamentally, yeah. Mm. Um, treating, so I have uh, some ClickHouse examples where I have, tape, I, have, I have dictionaries, which are literal key value lookups covering half my memory. Of my literal RAM, mm -hmm. I have. Then I have a hot layer, which is a material, a strict materialized view in local SSD, and I have my cold extension off in S3, which is either scrubbing across Parquet files from a data lake, or it's just reading files I've dumped there myself. And then I have tiered storage, but multiple, more than just the two everyone talks about. Yeah, yeah. Is that because you just like the idea? Is that practically useful? Do you think we should be doing it? So is the future going to look like that? That's what I'm getting well, at. I started out thinking this is fun, like I often do. Yeah. And what, what can I do next? Because of the, the, because of um, ClickHouse is a massive box of tools. But then what happened was you come across the simple fact of you need the right tool for the job. And this is where we come back to those language choices. Why should I use R or Python today versus SQL? Mm. Is if my problem domain is too complicated to easily express as SQL, I probably shouldn't. But then, if I want to, if I, but if I want, if I have a regular query I'm running on repeat, let's say it's you know I have my my I have my streaming analytics coming in right, which is let's say every single position of every single vehicle in my fleet of deliver of delivery drivers coming in, also the state of every kitchen of all the restaurants we work with, or a food delivery company today. Yeah, I want often want to know a view of every single restaurant against where their delivery driver currently is. That's just a key value pair, series of key value pairs. Yeah. But if you think about how much scrubbing you've got to do to get that view out of something in S3, that is disproportionately expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I want to do it once and have it ready to go. And this is where you get to those optimizations of it's not just faster by two orders of magnitude or three, it's cheaper by four because I'm not paying for every single one of those network hops along the way. Yeah. And when you actually want to start getting these big answers, you start needing to think, how do I have small data? If I want big answers fast, I can't have lots of data change when I want to change them. Otherwise, my calculation is just going to start stretching into near infinity. And we can only put so many cores in before it stops making sense. Because otherwise, you end up with a simple fact of that I'm hopping between cores, hopping between threads, hopping between servers, and I'm back to that, wait, how fast is my network again? Yeah. I'm sure... Now, this feels like, to play devil's advocate, someone is going to hop in and say, hang on, you're trying to join two large data sets. You're back to Postgres. Of course, yes. And the answer is, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> if we could, uh, I think Ben stops it, puts it this best of, if we could get away with just Postgres, we would. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite fun. And the answer is, like, you always are joining something. But my argument then comes down to, if I pay the join once, and only once, 
right? And then have the secondary table ready to go. Am I good? Hmm. And if you just have these kind of cascaded views of your data, and this cascades all the way up, this is not, and this is kind of the big conceit of where I work right now is I don't have to just say this tool is magic. I can say this tool starts here, stops here, and then I go up the tree. Because yeah. now I get to say, and now let's go really fast and have a Redis cache on top. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so give me that map then, and I'll, I'll allow you a bit of a plug here for, um, for Ivan. Yes. Okay. G- so given the services on offer, where do they start and end? So uh, to give you a kind of example of like, let's say, let's say you are that a rideshare company or a delivery company, but, also, but it, e-commerce, e-commerce is where every, everyone, everything is e-commerce strictly. Cause everyone's no, selling give give me the like restaurant that. one. Cause I like that. Cause I've not heard that one before. Give so, me the restaurant one. You start with many drivers streaming their locations. So you've got lots of quick data coming in. Yeah. So that's MQTT. And then we're going to absorb that into Kafka because Kafka beautifully matches with MQTT. I wanted to give that talk, but they said no. <laughs> <laughs> But, so MQTT have, because it is just the IoT just language of choice. Yeah, but you can put yeah. WebSockets there with Ably or something else. It doesn't really matter. You just need to get that data in quick, and it's streamed. So then we've got the stream of data coming in from Kafka. And now we're going to build what I like to joke about, known as the KFC stack. And <laughs> it's an actually good joke because it's Kafka, Flink, and ClickHouse, but also because we have 11 products, which are our herbs and spices. Oh, God. Okay. I, yeah, I basically okay. had everyone sighing okay. in the room, and I was like, this is staying. <laughs> that's the proof of a good pun if you can make yeah. the whole room groan yes yes and literally one of my team just go nope and walk away from it <laughs> <laughs> okay so what happens then is you go into something like flink so flink is kind of the, the stream processing engine du jour and not, not to say that it's going to go away as it's actually slightly older than spark which is funny um it has been around that long but it's kind of very good at this kind of distributed streaming processing thing. Take, like, take the kind of concept of Kafka streams, but wrap it up in something that will handle all of the offset management for you, the checkpointing for you. Mm. So you do a big kind of, let's say, join denormalization, and then like you split out the data, you convert it to Avro, you make it in some properly easy to process formats. Then you put it into, so you're in Kafka right now, then you stream it back to ClickHouse. So you have your long-term store being built live. So this is where you have data going back into the time. But then it's still in Kafka. So we can do more because Kafka and PubSub means you then have a hot cache in Redis. So this is where you do geo-add. So the Kafka connectors for Redis have the ability to actually add the data to geosets in Redis. So now what I can do is build a hot cache where every single driver is for geopoint queries. While I'm doing all the rest of this, in flight, no real cost to anything else. Nice. So okay. So yeah. now I know where all my drivers are in real time. I do the same thing in my restaurant. So I have two caches. Give me, give me the restaurant and its current status. Give me the driver and their current status. But now I want to do one step more and queue up another kind of nice, quick, easy to access table to say, give me the best thing for my current situation. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to join the contents of my drivers in flight with where they are. So I now have a, so now what I do is I have a averaging over a window. So every 20 seconds, I might say, dump out the drivers and their locations and their current content and their current direction. So when I do a select from to calculate nearest driver, please, I have a nice, you know, approximately hot cache to know these are the people in the snapshot window, at which point I can ask the, hot, the really hot cache to say, where are they really? And then I can yeah. safely make that join. But it gets better because this is PubSub and I have more than one subscriber. So that restaurant data is coming through. And I now know if my restaurants are starting to meet their capacity or not. Because I have previous historic data in ClickHouse to say these restaurants can only really handle 30 or 40 orders per second. So I can do a join of your orders, per, your max orders per second and say, anyone starting to exceed that, 
recommend them down, have them lower in the list. So I don't ever end up over indexing on the most popular restaurants. Yeah. One egalitarian, I want my everyone in my restaurant platforms to experience, you know, an even load. But more importantly, I can't give a bad customer experience. You know, this whole thing we do is because of customer experience. Yes. Yeah. Always. So now what I've got is the ability to recommend the right restaurant at the right time, independent of how loaded they are. So the load just goes, if the load goes too high on, on the local place that serves the best pineapple pizza, it's going to go <laughs> down the tree. Yes, that's an in-joke, and you'll probably have another guest on here at a later point who will make it more apparent. <laughs> <laughs> but when that goes down the order list because they're too busy, no yeah. one is going to suffer, neither the restaurant having to say no, nor a user getting frustrated. And this is where it's most important here. Is we're doing this in real time. You don't have to re-query and see full restaurant, full restaurant. We're just not going to return it to your app because we know yeah. what's cool. And we also know not to give a driver too much things. We know when a driver is not actually going to make a turnaround point. We can give a really accurate assessment of cycle time. Actually, the driver we suggested might have, you know, might be the closest, but he's on break because we have his current state before we make the decision. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you are in that stack, you're advocating for real-time data spending the cost of materialization once per notification and having that ability to have the historic views turned into it's basically so often i term this as extract transform load and optimize starting the o to the end because like the key problem always ends up being is i've loaded this data but if i don't optimize it i can't really use it outside of a dashboard yeah so how do i make long-term historic data usable and real-time scale so and your answer to that is picking sure. specific data tools for the job. Exactly. And yeah. you never have a stack of one tool. If you have one magical tool for me and it's not Postgres, I'm going to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At um, what point should a, problem, should a solution start going beyond Postgres into this, what is definitely a more complex and expensive stack? Oh, so the answer is as late as you can get away with. And, that's <laughs> and no serious. later. And no later, ideally. Okay. But the inevitable fact is slightly too late is nearly always the case. Yeah. But it's we get to this point where you can be quite forward-looking because none of none of these things are hard dependencies on each other. That's the magic of doing a proper distributed architecture with something like an event bus between them. Because we can start with Postgres at a clickhouse next to it, just federate, just start, just start draining the long-term data out straight away. No additional tools required. And then we say, actually, we need this data to go more places. Let's start with PubSub, start with RabbitMQ if we need to go lightweight. Go to Kafka when you realize RabbitMQ is, you know, it's still it's still pre-version one, so maybe it has a problem. <laughs> yes, I will bash RabbitMQ for <laughs> <laughs> But it is still below version 0. It's not version one yet due to reasons. Reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, naming, at this point, I believe it's naming convention more than anything else. Yeah, we could go into a whole separate rant about what version one actually means, but let's not. Yes, yes, I, I believe marketing is the technical answer at this point. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the idea is you incrementally build one of these systems. And the reason you normalize against something like doing this on event is because once you decouple the systems a little bit and say, I'll bring the best thing for the best for the right job, and rather than overstressing any individual system, is at no point does your main transaction system fail if any of the things downstream fail, right? You still take orders, right? You can still have a rough guess that your driver is going to get there or not get there. And it allows you to have this ability to say, 
well, I wanted to do this transactional system in Postgres, but now I've gone too big. Let's roll Cassandra. Let's actually go massively, massively huge. Let's make sure I can't fail at any given point in time. No single point failures. Mm. So I'm rolling Cassandra. Let's say I'm doing shopping baskets now. This is one of my favorite little demos I built, mostly to try and prove a point to a local supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, let's say I have my baskets at big scale. I'm using change data capture. I'm pulling that thing out of Cassandra tables because I can go at any scale. And now what I'm doing is matching that, my baskets, with my actual inventory. So now I know when I've exceeded the percentage of, I might have actually tried to sell too many oranges today. Right. Therefore, what I can do is message my top pe- my top few people who are either my subscribers and say, lock in now and don't get a substitution. Because I now know roughly who is going to be disappointed ahead of time. Because yeah. I've seen it happen as it happens. But as my stock levels change in real time as well, I need to have both. Yeah. In that so two questions and they may be the same answer. Yeah. In that stack. What's the place for transaction-heavy processing? Ah, no, actually, I'll, I'll save the second question. Where, where does because all we, everything you've described feels like analytics-based programming? So, processing. I, so I fall into that camp of being more into the event sourcing world and arguing that transactions are kind of a flawed concept. Okay, give me that argument. I'm, okay, so the idea of a transaction is it's atomic, consistent. Isolated and I remember, is D durable? Durable, yes. Between yes. the two of us, we can pass the yes. job into me. <laughs> we are sort of a computer scientist. <laughs> <laughs> we're a computer. We're computer enthusiasts. <laughs> <laughs> so the point about transactions, particularly, is firstly, everyone says distributed transactions are hard, and any system with two systems is distributed. So we've already in distributed transactions before we even started. And okay, the, yep. first part, the second part is that. The first thing you must do for a transaction to be real is stop time. Because of your transaction is only ever going to be consistent within a certain time slice it was ever in. It can only be atomic, yeah. assuming no other writes happened at the same time it happened, which means you're already time slicing in ticks, which yeah. only means that your consistency is time sliced to that point in time, at which point, if I want to refer to it, that time point has passed. So either it's an event source, at which point I materialize my events and it is consistent, or it's not consistent. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the ever classic, a bit of the quantum world of incremental time, but also just the idea that I believe that we have this kind of touchstone of acid compliance, assuming it's assuming it's the only way to do things, whereas actually it's never really held true. It's like cap theorem. It we normally get one, not two. <laughs> <laughs> right? If we on a good day we get on a good day we get one and a bit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But it doesn't actually matter is the other point, because that's the trick here is if we can make everything go quickly enough, one, the likelihood of a change low enough that we're statistically we're good enough. But also, so you think push into event sourcing and avoid the transactional system entirely? So dial it back as lower its, lower its footprint as far as you can. Like you do need like you do need guarantees where transactional systems offer really good guarantees, though I argue that what they consider to be guarantees are softer than they admit they are. Just because of you've used computers for a long time, I've used computers for a long time. The one thing the longer you use computers for is the more surprised they work than you were. This. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every day I'm more surprised anything works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is because the more you see these systems, the more you know what's going on, the more you realize that none of these things have a consistent view of the world. So we basically assume that Postgres, MySQL, or one of these others has a pretty damn good view of the world. So we'll trust it to a certain point. 
as our kind of starting point. And then as we kind of cascade down the stack, we basically accept that we are not event, we are eventually consistent in a defined time frame of assuming no more events popped up, we are going to be consistent. And that is literally the model we have to go for. Because any system beyond a certain level of complexity is going to be somewhat consistent at best. Uh, there's a great talk by, I can't remember her name anymore, at uh, Kafka Summit, where talking about the idea of like using completion patterns. That's exactly oh, that was Anna McDonald. Great talk. Best talk I heard there. Genuinely. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to that. It is the best talk of Kafka Summit, oh in gosh, our I humble am- opinion. I have I, I have written a kind of a follow a literal follow on to it for for Flink Forge which didn't get accepted, but like it's now a cornerstone of what I talk about a lot because I've used exactly these patterns before and for exactly the same reasons. It's just that this was like that crystallizing moment of I need to talk about this more, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like that exact thing. If we can achieve consensus, it's not a problem, but we've got to pay for it somewhere. But we don't need to pay for it where everyone assumes you do. So outbox pans, they're fine, but do we need them? Take me through that in a bit more detail. So outbox basically says that we have our transactional table. We join a bunch of things and we output to another table and we just follow the log of that table. Right? Where I'm going to argue that fundamentally we're doing some processing. Let's just throw that into our stream processing engine, which is a bit further downstream, and have the events as is and get no delay. Okay. So why not just use Flink for that downstream and rebuild it at will and have all the information when we need it, rather than assuming like we only need a limited subset. Now, this doesn't work in banking or some of the highly regulated things where you need to show certain things are true. Therefore, showing three things work in one database is much cleaner than showing they work across 10. Yes, yeah, yeah. and it's more likely to be true, frankly. One would hope. These days, once again, <laughs> oh, I have been surprised. <laughs> Well, yes. Also, early days of certain databases I won't mention led me to believe that publishing to Dev Null was a slightly more was at least deterministic compared to some of their <laughs> so-called <laughs> transactions. I can probably guess which databases you're thinking of, but let's let's duck that. No, they they and I, and if you know the one I'm talking of, it got a hell of a lot better. They bought somebody, you fixed it. <laughs> okay, it's MySQL, isn't it? Oh, it's not. Oh, is it not? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> oh, okay. I because MySQL. Oh, my suffered sequel, from that, oh, and they bought something and got a hell of a lot better. Well, that that definitely did, yeah. That, but that was all. That, but that, oh, you're uh, thinking Mongo, aren't you? Might be, might not be. <laughs> right, okay. It's one of those two, or possibly yes, both. I'll simply say that Wire Tiger is really good. <laughs> okay, yes, <yeah, that> <laughs> I get to say it. <laughs> yes, but generally, Mongo is an absolutely awesome tool these days. In fact, it is so good it actually causes problems because people don't model their data as much as they might need to ahead of time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Mongo that, is the wonderful safety blanket until it isn't. Yeah, because the other lesson of relational databases, which was modeling your data and understanding your data, mo- data yes. model as a primary concern. Yes. I think that's an art we've lost in programming. It really is. And when I came, so I came into databases originally through Cassandra, and the idea of not modeling data to me seems 100% alien. Because there's only model your data, and if you start in hard type languages like C plus plus or um, or Haskell for a while for me as well as you were thinking. Haskell, yeah, absolutely. You you get this idea of I don't understand. Everything has a type. <laughs> yeah, I, I I always like the Rich Hickey quote: "Everything has a schema. The only question is, did you write it down?" Yes, exactly. And then he wrote an unstructured language, and I'm and I'm at this point of. <laughs> You know, two of these things do not agree, and I do not know where you're going with this. 
<laughs> no, I, I love what Plosia can do. I just can't. I can't wrap my head around its thought patterns required. Yeah, I see. I love the thought patterns. My what killed Closure for me, not killed, but retired, mm. let's say, is I found that in Haskell I could do everything I liked about Closure plus static typing and see, all the benefits that come with that. I went the other way that was the problem, right? Because I started out in Haskell and I got to Closure and was like, but now I have JSON objects flying around and I have no idea what they are. <laughs> and I was like, I need a monadic expression here because this is not a pure function. I'm doing something. And there's no first-class monad. No, he's sort of just implied as a closure. And I was like, oh, it's yeah. not quite what I needed. <laughs> yeah, okay. So without delving too far down into monads, let's take back to something you said earlier. Do you think the problem with putting um, something like uh, Python yes. in your processing stack is malicious code, right? If you have wild Python running into, let's say I built a tool and then I let you put code inside it, wild code is always a problem and yeah. sandboxing, is not easy is the short version. Well, this is, again, without using the M word, that's mm -hmm. something in Haskell that lets you sandbox what a piece of code is allowed to do, and it works really well. Yes. Any hope of that pushing out into our data processing languages? So this is kind of like, in, in my opinion, the number one reason SQL is still too damn useful to go away, is it limits what you can do to a subset of very useful queries someone has already done some heavy lifting to make fast. Yeah. And... Yeah. It's also the promise of WASAM, if you get you know, where I'm going, right? Well, and WebAssembly, the idea yeah. of taking these kernels that bake down to a known API set and then embedding them inside your software. Uh, this is how ScyllaDB does its um, UDFs, is because it's running a C, it's running on top of C++. And UDFs being user-defined functions software. that you yeah. embed into the database yeah. language. You know, custom yeah. code, basically. Yeah. And the only thing to do there is have some way of sandboxing it. Lua can be sandboxed because it was designed to be. JavaScript, bizarrely enough, is pretty good at this as well and that, because it was designed to be sandboxed inside the browser. Okay, yeah, yeah. It was actually originally a sandbox language. Why they didn't use Lua at all is, is a thing I will continuously ask, is Lua would have been a better <laughs> choice. It's also smaller, which makes it more of thinking for embedded languages. Yeah, and it's a more rational implementation. I mean, you can actually write to a spec. That I makes know. sense. Yeah. It's a short one as well, which makes it <laughs> very happy. Yeah. But yeah, and the idea of being able to push this, you know, a code which is sandboxed into your database is super powerful. Like, but you always end up with this kind of dichotomy once again of saying, well, why don't you just query it? Which is so Spark, all of it is, you know, build data frames on a distributed system and then do stuff and then put it somewhere else. So it's pull it all out, put it in memory across N systems and put it back. And it's great. Until you realize how much that can cost at any yeah. speed or how many isn't, times it can run. Isn't Flink doing that as well? So Flink is, if you run it the same way as you run Spark, and this is where we say about amortized versus batched costs. So mm -hmm. if it's if you're having to do something in memory at speed, there's no option but to put the data in memory. right? So we should pay that cost once and up front. This is the uh, transform bit of that extract transform uh, load optimized step. So my, right. my, my thesis is do as few calculations as you can, as upstream as you can get away with, right, of the end of query patterns. So because in general, queries as SQL as an end user is much easier than writing code to talk to some custom data store. I've, mm. I've queried bits on a, on a chip before. I do not recommend. <laughs> <laughs> like if you look at some of the old game save formats, they are literally bit reads for bit flags. Yeah. And they're horrible. They are very horrible. And it's why you get things like in, I think, 
I can't remember which game it's like Starfield, the new one that came out recently. Oh yeah, that's the new Bethesda there one. Are corrupted save files where you have to do some ridiculous stuff to uncorrupt them. Like you've got to like if you I can't remember what it is, but if you do something, you'll freeze your game until you some bits of your game will freeze until you swap your character's gender backwards and forwards because it will, <laughs> because it will set a bunch of bits that will reset things. Right. Oh god. Yeah. No. Those sorts of bugs shouldn't exist, but you can they see why they do. And you, you can, oh, I mean, if you've ever been in these kind of things where you've just got to get these weird formats working, you just go, I tried. It was, <laughs> I could test edge cases, but then players happened. Yeah. <laughs> and hence we end up with this idea of saying, what happens if we just constrain the data language down? And yeah. say, don't allow someone to write custom code to write custom bits on a wire. Because, <laughs> so, like, yeah. Do you think we'll see a future with more custom constrained languages is that what you're saying i so i've seen a lot of declarative languages come out recently it's a project i do some things every now and again with called tremors or tremor.rs and it's a stream processing engine written in rust but it doesn't it exposes a rust api if you want to go deep but its default one is in fact just its own domain specific language which is declarative and very and has a very defined spec for exactly these reasons they know what it can do they know the engine only has certain types of things ex- externally imposed inside it. But for one of a better thing, as long as you constrain what the user does, you can highly optimize it when it, when it, hits the, when it actually hits the actual engine itself. Mm. You submit it, it can be vectorized, as in like SIMD optimized out, all the loops can be unrolled, because it's a known thing. It's a scoped problem. But as soon as you unscope the problem, you just don't know how long it's going to take, and which basically makes, which either makes your SaaS vendor very, very happy or very, very sad, <laughs> as you uh, have the lambda that clocks up a million dollars in 10 minutes see what happened yeah. Heard horror stories <laughs> yeah yeah but the other half of that is simply that like it also means you can rationalize it better because i've written a lot of stuff from c upwards and you end up having to you build your own constructs as you take them around and kind of functional the best thing about functional programming is it teaches you how to think in terms of composability yeah you compose all these bits together in your head and go right i'll bring this composed model with me and go and that's super powerful, but most people don't want to do that. They just want aggregate, distinct, go. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to have to work out what bloom filter you need to run a distinct query. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the great thing about SQL, right? The declarative yeah. nature. It's, it's the few, one of the, possibly the only declarative language that has really stood the test of time. Absolutely. Like before this, I was looking through the kind of uh, the Wikipedia page of fourth gen languages to try and find any I recognize beyond that. Yeah. And I did find one. <laughs> I've used most things, I thought, until I looked at that table and went, hmm, none. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, there's there's something to be said for like XML could be considered one of these things. Like really? there are whole queries written in XML for early. Oh, so some of the some of the XML query languages, sure. Yeah. yeah. And then like yeah. XPath for JSON as well. Yeah. And those kind of tools have different query tools, but they're basically just modeling SQL to the new domain. Yeah. And that's kind of CSS where CSS to a degree. CSS is this whole thing. I like there are three, there are on the list of things, you know, you have to choose some things to ignore and CSS is very high on my list of things. There <laughs> be dragons. And <laughs> okay. no. we, won't, we won't trigger any traumas for oh, you. It's also trauma is just complete lack of understanding. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> no, um, for my sins, I have written far more front ends in raw C than in anything approaching JavaScript. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> 
it's just the nature of what you do. And this is the kind of the running joke is when you meet anyone who is with, uh, with a significant amount of domain expertise, you always end up with someone with a lopsided skill set. And mine says, I don't write JavaScript very often. <laughs> yeah. So perhaps to wrap this up, then, that we can touch on that problem because there's always the danger. Most places don't get the ideal architecture for what they're doing. Some of that is structural management, cross-department constraints, time, budget. But some of it is not knowing what you don't know. You're not knowing that MQTT would be the ideal solution here or that ClickHouse would actually massively improve your solution over there. Have you got any, beyond just stay curious and keep learning, have you got any suggestions for how people can like fill their toolbox? So uh, I would be cheeky and say, listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> it's a kind of cheekiness I love. Thank you. But <laughs> you know, beyond that, like the classic way I always, the thing I, the way I've genuinely learned a lot of what I've learned is just to keep, is you pull up a tool, which you inevitably get at least one and you see what it can connect to. And you list, you just list down the connectivity. So I found Kafka because I needed a queue system and I was looking for what what, uh, you know, you can Google for what queues you want to talk to. But back in 2016, you probably wouldn't have found Kafka. I found it right. back then because what I was looking for was a way to make things durable on disk in long in logs, literally. <laughs> Which, when I was digging around, I found that exact phrase. But these days, when I'm learning things, I'm mostly finding it in the documentation of the tool I'm already in. There are some really powerful oh. tools which have federated, like let's say, uh, you look at the uh, ClickHouse documentation, you list the number of federated tables it can offer. That's so you don't know about AMQP. And you go, what is this thing? It seems to be able to be materialized out of in ClickHouse. And I'm like, what is AMQP? And then you can go on this little learning mission to see what's next. Oh, so you're basically learning what you currently know as nodes on a graph. Exactly. And this is the, the way I tend, like, so the best thing about graph theory, to quote a friend, is that everything can be either a node or an edge, right? <laughs> and fundamentally, like, if you think about things as a series of nodes, you're never going to need more than one. I would love to give the talk where I make everything just Postgres and use a Postgres <laughs> instance for every single thing from the queues to the processing engine to everything else. And it will work <laughs> for a defined definition of well enough to prove a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, it turns out Revolut do exactly this, by the way, if you look at their published architecture. Oh, really? Yes. But then again, they went down in a big way recently. So I was just reading a Revolut horror story this weekend yes, about direct so debit payments. that much Postgres is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> but you kind of come back to this idea of saying, when you need, when inevitably you have a problem, like, I don't know, like the classic one is, I want to do a delayed task, right? And this is one of the most genuinely hard problems I keep coming into is, how do I start a task at a defined interval of time in the future? And the answer is, there are very, very, lo there are lots of, lots and lots and lots of average answers to this question. Yeah. I get to find a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think to reference that talk that you mentioned, I think Anna McDonald's answer would be, that's probably not actually what you want to do. Exactly. And that is the thing. It's like you very you don't like being time independent is possibly the most powerful thing you can do. Yeah. And it comes down to this idea of say you want to do this, and then you keep exploring. You go, Well, I have a cron tab. No, please stay away from the cron tab. <laughs> and then you go, Well, I can do cron in the database. Better, but dot dot dot. <laughs> yeah. And then you look at something like temporal.io, which is a wonderful which is not quite uh one of these DAG processors or directing a cyclical graph processing engines, but it does have all these primitives like delay X and then do. And you think, that sounds interesting. Is that what I should be using? And you look into it and you work out how it's doing it and you realize, probably, I, I, yes, for some things, ideally never. 
<laughs> but it's like having a TTL check effectively. Just as it does a really clever TTL check in like whatever the base database it's using is, and then extracts that into your programming language for you. But then right. you come down to this idea of you say, well, what's next? And you say, well, I need to get the data out of that. So change data capture. There's tools for it on my database. And this is why, like a lot of why I have a lot of fun at Ivan is I get to say yes. <laughs> like generally, like we all know that Kafka solves a lot of problems and definitely not all problems. And mm. it's fundamental. And I will challenge that statement of it being the new data lake any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> but that's for a different one. I'll have that argument another day. That's a different argument. Yeah. But the key thing here is it could be used as one at a pinch. Yeah. And I disagree wholeheartedly because for all kinds of reasons. But the key thing here is like, but what would be better? And the answer is, well, like, like you know, Hoodie and Iceberg have first-class integrations with it. So why don't we find the thing which is optimal for the task we have? And with Ivan, actually, I'd start with ClickHouse because it can write to either of those, but they also do that wonderful compression across columns. Yeah. So it comes I'm like, back to this dream I have one that because all these nodes yeah. that connect to each other, dream of actually building a map of computing. Exactly. And it's like a Lord of the Rings thing, the, yeah. <laughs> the Isles of Despair. The... <laughs> and then you have like the, and then the signal goes through like the beacon fires going yeah. all the hilltops. <laughs> and the data lake will be drawn as a real lake with things in it. It will be. It'll be the Black Marshes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as you can guess, the true nerd shines through. Yeah. On that point, perhaps we best leave it with the dream of a map of programming. <laughs> exactly. And the idea of being able to traverse it with the right tool at the right place. Yeah. Yeah. And not get lost on the way. Oh, we would. We wish. <laughs> <laughs> Probably would. Even then, because it's fun, right? It's always it is fun. fun. And that's kind of the joy of it all is the answer. The answer is it depends is kind of is always thrown, thrown out as a bad thing. But the answer is it depends mostly because we have more than one answer. And many of them are pretty OK. Yeah, yeah. And some of them are, most of them are worth knowing for later, for one day in the future. Yes. Cool. And it's always great to be able to say, yes, but. <laughs> yeah. On that note, Ben Gamble, thank you very much for joining us and filling us with some new things to put on our map. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure as always. Pleasure. See ya. Thank you very much, Ben. We will be continuing to draw that map of the landscape over here at Developer Voices, so do consider subscribing if you haven't already. We will be back next week with more. In the meantime, you'll find links to the things we mentioned in the show notes, along with Ben and my contact details if you want to get in touch. And if you have a particular expertise in some corner of that programming map, let me know. I'm always scouting for interesting new guests, new tour guides to show us around places. And with that, I will leave you until next time. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Ben Gamble. Thanks for listening. <laughs>